And so here at Storehouse, here's ultimately what, what we believe, right? We believe that the gospel affects change in the everyday, like wholeheartedly, like I, I promise you, I, I get up and I think about that, that the gospel affects change in the ordinary, right? And so in light of that, what we value, I think if you visit several churches, and I'm not knocking them because you'll see this even on our website, but I think if you visit our website or other churches' website, you'll see that they, they'll have things like core values, Right? Man, we value cultural relevance. We value community. We value gospel-centered preaching. And I think all of those things are wonderful. And I think many times we can get lost in the minutia of all of those details. And so uh, by way of preface of our time and really forevermore, I want to tell you our values. And we have two of them. We have two quick values. And it, and it ties into the sermon today. But our first value is a gospel identity. Like we believe so passionately about, um, so passionately, convincingly, and just through conviction that our first value is a gospel identity. Our second value um, is, is really redemptive activity. You see, many times, if not always, we live in a culture, we live in a world where what you do determines who you are, Right? Yet, according to the teachings of Scripture, it's countercultural. Where it's who you are determines what you do. You feel me on that? That tends to be, or that is the position that we hold here at Storehouse. And so, in light of that, we wholeheartedly believe that the gospel affects change in the ordinary, in the daily. And so for us, our value is gospel identity and then redemptive activity. Because again, we believe that who we are, we want to start with who we are and how that affects change. Now, with that being said, as, as we move forward, the reason we dive so much into that and the reason as we were kind of looking over that this week, uh, part of the reason we were, I don't know, part of the reason it was kind of revealed to us like, hey, this is something that we've just been talking about from the pulpit in, in classes and stuff like that. We've been talking about these two things without saying that they're values, but we've been talking about these two things for the past couple of months. It just really led us to the conclusion of, man, that's what we value. That's what we've been preaching, right? And so I think one of the, one of the fun things that I've learned, I have, I have a friend who is a church planter in suburbia, Austin, right? What many people call the motherland. And so he's out in Austin and I was talking to Jordan. And one of the things Jordan tells me about what they call missional communities, we call community groups. One of the things Jordan was telling me about, he says, my challenge isn't necessarily keeping people's Bibles open. It's teaching them to be a family, right? Because uh, suburbia, Austin tends to be so transient. And I said, man, I get that but I don't because mine is switched. Uh, I don't necessarily need to teach people to know what it's like to be in a family because of our culture, but our, our biggest push right now is keeping our Bibles open, helping, teaching, and preaching uh, who Jesus says we are because that in turn affects what we do. Now, with all of that being said, I wanted to 
cause that way of introduction to lead us to where we're going to find ourselves this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. So if you got your Bibles, go ahead and open them. Go ahead and load your Bibles. And, uh, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to read that section, and then, uh, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll dive into our time. Let me grab my Bible. All right, here we go. And so this is Acts chapter 2. And so Luke writes, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done for the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we prepare our hearts, or better yet, as our hearts have been primed and ultimately prepared uh, through singing of songs, Lord, my prayer is that we would intently look at your word, that we would evaluate our hearts in light of your word, and that your Holy Spirit would lead us, uh, compel us to change, to repent, and for our lives to be transformed. Okay, here we go. Let me give you by way of illustration kind of where we're headed today. So there are several things that maybe you and I would say that ultimately define a family, right? You could look at the dictionary and the dictionary is going to say a family is defined as two parents and children living together under one household. That's what the dictionary will, will tell you. In addition to that, there are things that you can see people do that will help you to lead to the conclusion that they are a family. For example, I'm, I'm one of four boys. My parents are down here, so it's kind of a lot of pressure, but my, I'm one of four boys. How many of you who are parents have, have boys, right? There are things that boys just do that lead you to believe that they are brothers, right? Like when it came to growing up with my brothers, we wrestled a lot. They picked on me all the time because I'm the youngest. They played pranks on me. And then there, were, there was like those really weird jokes that seemed to be in boy culture uh, or in brotherly culture. Then it just led to the conclusion that those guys are brothers. They're weird. We're not going to talk to them, right? That tends to be how, how it was. Friends would come over, and I could remember, um, like, I don't know what it is about roughhousing. My wife and I have had this conversation several times, but roughhousing, when it comes to boys, it just is. And I could remember, and I'm kind of confessing this in front of my parents, they would go on date nights, right? And my brother, my eldest brother and I would take off all the, the, the sofa cushions and we'd put them all in around the living room. And that was our wrestling ring. And so we would watch WWE and I would get power bombed and we'd watch Sting and Bret Hart. And we tried to mimic the sharpshooter and the scorpion deathlock. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry, you're not that cool. And so <laughs> my brothers and I would do that. And so Friends would come over or, or friends, uh, like my, my parents' friends would come over and be like, those guys are idiots and brothers, 
right? Like that's, that's who we were. But outside of that, I could see you or you could see me with my wife and my son. And, and there are things that we do that would ultimately lead you to the conclusion that we're a family. Likewise, where we're going in Acts chapter 2, ultimately what we're going to look at is not only what defines a church, but what a church does, right? And I say that because at the end of the day, in terms of the church, we're a family that God in his graciousness and in his goodness has called us to himself, adopted and grafted us into his family calling us his own. Because of that, we're a family. Now, with that being said, I might say that, and you might stand up a little straight. You might be like, I don't know. This family is weird. This family is quirky. And I would ultimately agree with you because family life is weird. Family life is quirky. It's messy. It's sometimes difficult. And yet it is still a family. Right? There are things that we need to work through. There are things that kind of separate us from other families, and that's cool, and we're quirky, and we're weird, and it's messy, and we do this together, and sometimes we're not sure why, but nevertheless, we continue to do it together. Family is messy. And so nonetheless, that calls us to be a family. Right? And so over the past two weeks, we've looked at a gospel identity. We've looked at ourselves as worshipers, and that generally ties into you as an individual, right? Today, we're looking at you as an individual regarding your identity as a family. We went from the individual, now we're looking at the family. One person who follows Jesus is referred to as a Christian. Several is referred to as the church. The church is not a building, you see, when you guys bounce out of here for lunch and do all your things, this goes back to being the incubator. And that's all it is. It's a building. And we office out of here. It's pretty cool. That's it. But where you guys scatter is where the church goes. Right? And so we find ourselves looking at Acts 2, looking at what defines the church, and then ultimately what the church does. Right? And so we're going to look at a few things. I got a list because I like lists. I tend to think that sometimes helps. And so I have a list of nine things. I think it's ten. I have a list of ten things that ultimately define a church. And where I want to park is in the first four words of verse 42. Right? Verse 42 opens up by saying, and they devoted themselves. See, you can read this entire section and maybe say, oh no, it says that they only devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, but ultimately 42 to 47 is one giant thought, right? It's an enormous thought. It's not just a sentence. And so it says that they devoted themselves to one another. That means that they were committed to one another, and that should be the first primary mark of the church, that the church in all its quirkiness, it's all its weirdness, it's all its messiness is devoted to one another. And I would actually take you to Romans chapter 13, verse 8, where Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has been fulfilled by the law. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that Jesus is our obedience. 
Jesus is our obedience. And because of that, we owe one another nothing except to love one another. What you should expect from me is that I love you well. What I should expect from you is that you love me well and one another well. Jesus is our obedience. And on the cross, he took not only our place, but our penalty for our sin, which is death. Upon doing that, his work now reconciles us to the Father. And that might be weird language. In simplest terms, that means that through Jesus, we now have a relationship with the Father. And the only thing we owe to one another is love. And this is specific to the church. We're not talking about going outside the walls of the church. I'm talking about us here right now as believers, as Christians, that we are to love one another, right? In addition to that, this carries us into this culture of devotion, and you see it played out in the life of the church, which is ultimately what we're going to be looking at in just a second. So keep the devotion in the back burner, because you're going to see how that ties into everything else. Here's the second thing that uh, Luke writes that the church does. And I, and I would add to this, what we're looking at in verses 42 to 47 is both a description of the early church and a prescription for us today. I think you can look at Acts 2 and say, yeah, that's the way they did it. But we do it differently. Sure, our practices may be different than them but the principle remains the same. So I believe that Acts 2, 42 to 47 is both a description and a prescription for church life. So here's the second thing that Luke writes. He says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Simply, this means gospel-centered preaching. Now, a few of these characteristics, they're going to overlap with what we talked about as worshipers last week. And so I won't spend too much time on those, but on the ones that we ultimately didn't cover, I'll dive a little bit further into. And as far as gospel-centered preaching, here's what I would encourage you with, right? Last week I told you that part of my job is to feed the sheep, right? Like part of my job is to give you biblical nutrition. Your job in turn is to digest that and ultimately be hungry for more. And so when we're looking at gospel-centered preaching, what we're talking about is that everything starts and points back to Jesus as seen in his word. As that happens, your hunger for his word grows. Because... Scripture reveals or exposes our need for Jesus, right? Scripture exposes our need for Jesus. And oftentimes, this is what I see in the church, that people use Scripture to justify behavior. They use Scripture to justify their behavior, to justify how they treat other people, rather than allowing Scripture to expose their deepest and greatest need for Jesus. When we're looking at gospel-centered preaching, my job is to feed you biblical nutrition straight from God's word. Yours is to digest it 
and hunger for more so that you would go to Scripture and hear from God. That's gospel-centered preaching, and that's the cycle that it does. The second thing that we see the church, early church do is that we see them go into fellowship, right? This is a fancy word for community. Now, what I'll say about fellowship is that there is a distinction and a difference between fellowship and hospitality. Oftentimes, I think we confuse both of them, right? When we're looking at Scripture and we're looking at the practice of hospitality, what we're doing is we are welcoming strangers and making them be a part of what's going on, right? That's opening our doors to strangers, those who don't know Jesus, and welcoming them. When we're talking specifically about fellowship, we're talking specifically about the community of believers, okay? Does that make sense? Right, so there's hospitality, and then you have fellowship. So one is welcoming those who are strangers into what's going on. The other one is friendship and unity because of Jesus, right? In light of those two things, why community is so important. Community is so important, the Greek word for fellowship is called koinonia. And the, the reason it's so important, it's because it gives you a taste of the kingdom. It gives you this small taste for the kingdom. If you look at Ephesians chapter 3, Paul writes that God chose to reveal himself through the church. He chooses to reveal himself through the church. And so when we gather in community, when we gather and hang out at our homes or in the city, that is a small taste of what the kingdom is supposed to look like. Right? It's a small taste of what the kingdom is supposed to look like. Number three, uh, number, or number four, I should say, breaking of bread. So this is communion. We talked about this a little bit last week. Again, I won't go too far into it. When we're looking specifically at communion, we're looking at something that is for the believer only. On Sunday mornings, when we have a time for communion, it's not only a time or an opportunity for you to confess and repent of your sin, but it's also a time to recognize your greatest need for Jesus. It's a time to recognize that your salvation was not achieved, it was received. Okay? It's a time to recognize that your salvation was not achieved, it was received. And so this is for the believer. Yet, when we take communion in a couple of minutes, if you don't know Jesus, you can You can come to know Jesus, and what he says is that if we confess, if we are right in confessing and repenting of our sins, he will forgive us of those sins, right? Communion specifically is for the believer. The people who serve communion on Sunday mornings, their job is one of great significance because they're they're doing what is called they're fencing the table, Right? Because it is specifically for the believer. Additionally, Scripture says that if you approach the table with an unrepentant heart, that you actually bring blood on your hands. You bring judgment onto your hands. And so let me encourage you that when we go into a time of communion, don't rush that. Don't treat it like it's the next part of the service. 
It's an opportunity to confess and repent of your sin, man, to give your sin over to Jesus so that he can do only what he can do, and that is forgive us of our sins. Acknowledging that what we have wasn't achieved, but it was received. Number five, prayer. As the church, we should regularly pray for one another, confess our sin, and celebrate evidences of grace. Here's what I mean by that, and that's kind of the part I want to I hone in on when it comes to evidences of grace. Um, in my time being in the church, oftentimes what, what I see, whether it's in community groups or when we hang out outside in the city, oftentimes prayer is always associated with a rough patch in your life. Prayer is associated with something maybe that's about to go wrong or could go wrong or you're in a difficult season. And I'm not saying that that's bad. You should pray for one another in those moments. And you should also pray for one another in times of praise. You should pray for one another in times of praise because this is what prayer does. It exposes our humility or lack of and leads us to our dependence on God. Because if you're an individual where the brother or sister comes up to you and says, man, let me share this praise with you. And your thought, your thought is, why isn't that going on in my life? Why would you tell me that? You know I've been struggling with X, Y, and Z. So you make it about yourself. And that's the opposite of humility, right? Instead, when we're looking at Romans 13, what we should do is love one another. Particularly if we're in community with one another and someone shares a praise, we should be the loudest ones to celebrate alongside of them rather than them doing it in private, We should celebrate alongside of one another. We should celebrate at all the things that God is doing in you and through you and in the lives of others. This isn't a competition. And if you think it is, and if that tends to be your response to someone's praise, then let me encourage you as your pastor and a friend to repent. To repent of your pride. To repent of your arrogance. That's a brother and a sister coming to you and saying, look at what God is doing. And if your response tends to be, why not me? Then you have missed, you have missed the gospel. And so this week, here's what I would encourage you. Those of you, if you're in a community group, if you're not in a community group, I would encourage you to attend a community group. This is what I would say when you break off or pray for one another. Focus on the evidences of grace this week. I want you to ask one another, man, what did God do in or through you this week? And then I want you to celebrate that together. All right, don't can this. Don't put this in the back. I want you to do this. Again, oftentimes we associate prayer just with those difficult seasons and, and hard times. And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't pray. We should definitely pray for that time. And we should also pray for one another when we find ourselves in moments of praise. Man, God answers prayer, that God is working in and through others. Let us praise him for only what he can do. That's what I would say regarding prayer. The next thing that we see is number six, worship. We talked a little bit about this on on Sunday, but but that was in the context specifically on, on Sunday. Here, what they're talking about, especially when Luke writes that, and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
He's referring to, to worship. Now, you and I, we gather on Sundays to worship, celebrate, and remember a risen king. And we should be worshiping God throughout our week as well, both publicly and privately. And so that's the context of this verse, that this isn't having to deal with Sundays. This has to deal with the Monday through Saturday, right? That we should be worshiping God both publicly. Publicly could mean, man, that you got to share the gospel with somebody this week at your job or wherever it is that you hang out in or in your family. Privately means that, man, as God works in you, you just want to praise him for what he's done. You want to praise him for maybe the transformation that he has had in your life, right? So, man, let's worship him both publicly and privately. So the question here would be, man, how, I don't want to say how many, but have you had, I should say it that way, right? Have you had any gospel conversations this week, right? Or are you that Christian that loves the corner and the shadows? And I'll tell you what, man, I, I wrestle with that because, because I am that introvert. I do want to hang out in the corner and not talk to anybody and all that stuff. Like, I get that. But I mean, how many or, or have you had those gospel conversations? I get, I get my haircut at this barbershop on the north side of town, right, by a guy named Brooklyn. And Brooklyn is so freaking cool. And he knows that I'm a pastor and some of the other barbers around him know that I'm a pastor. And, uh, and so, but he is super open to allowing me to talk to him about Jesus. And I get to hear the passion in his voice when he talks to me about his two kids. He's originally from uh, New Jersey. Then he moved down to Texas to, to live with his uncle. And, uh, and I love Brooklyn. I love having those conversations. Um, Brooklyn doesn't know Jesus, but man, I love hanging with him. I love talking about uh, New York pizza because I've never really had real New York pizza. So I just know what I've seen from Ninja Turtles. And from, like apart from that, we'll talk about culture and we'll talk about family and we'll talk about just what's going on in his life. And there are moments where I get to encourage him or there's been one moment where he's allowed me to pray for him. Man, what kind of gospel conversations are you having, right? Or do you fall into the trap where you only hang out with Christians. And you only hang out with Christians, right? Do you have friends who don't know Jesus? If you don't, you should. You should have friends that don't know Jesus. And if you want a nice little exercise to do this week, you can go to your Christian friends and say, hey man, what do you, what do you think about me and my walk? I would hope that they would be encouraging, but I would also hope that they'd give you one or two things like, hey, right? Then go to your non-Christian friends and ask them, what do you think about me and Jesus and all this? They'll tell you the truth. Nevertheless, I digress, right? When it comes to us worshiping God, it's what Paul says in Colossians 3, that everything we do, we do for the glory of God and not man. And so we want to worship God publicly. We want to worship God privately. Uh, number seven. So we've covered a lot. Number seven is, is generosity, right? This is toward the end of, of our section. And Luke writes, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
So one of the marks of the church, both the description and a prescription, is generosity. Here's what I want to do regarding generosity. I want to like redeem that. I really, really want to redeem that because in, in churches, man, generosity is like taboo. You're like, you don't talk about that. I don't want to talk about my wallet or I don't want to talk about what I do with my wallet, but we're going to talk about it because if this is the mark of a church, if this is the mark of a believer, then it should be a normal part of our lives. It should be a normal rhythm. The reason we want to make it so private is because either we've had poor experiences with teachings, and I'm sorry for that. That's number one. Or number two, that's your God. Those are the two reasons. Because if we are marked by the finished work of Jesus, then all of these things that we've been talking about, the description and the prescription of the church, those are normal. Those are normative practices. Those are normative rhythms. Generosity is just another part of our life. Right? And at the end of the day, when it comes to generosity, it's not necessarily about money, but it is about trusting in God. That's ultimately what it's about. And sometimes, well, I should say it this way. Scripture says that God loves a cheerful giver. And sometimes the best way to achieve cheerfulness is by giving. Okay? And so what we see in the early church is that they are meeting one another's needs. That they are selling off stuff so that they meet the needs of the church. In addition, several chapters later on, what we're going to see is that they sell land to give back to the church so that they have a place to meet, so that they have a place to build on, so that they have things to do as the church. Generosity ultimately leads us to the question of how well we trust in God. Because if generosity really is one of the marks of a Christian, then the outward, the giving part of generosity what that does is it teaches others a testimony, or it shows, it gives others a testimony of what God has done, of what God is doing. It's you saying that I relinquish the control I think I have over my finances, that all of this ultimately belongs to God, and that the result of that is not just trust in the Lord, but that the mission of the church is practically now fueled. Our desire is to expand the kingdom of God. In McAllen, man, we want to develop partnerships. In McAllen and beyond, we want to plant churches. In Storehouse, I'd love to staff one of the other guys. Generosity and giving fuels the expansion of the kingdom. That just is that's how it works and the inward part is a testimony of what God has done it's a testimony of what God is doing it's a testimony that money or finances won't be our God so that's a mark of a church generosity number number eight salvations and so so we see this in in that section right this is toward the end I believe this is verse 46 Uh, No, this is verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. Uh, With all the people, and then it goes into, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here's what's going on. 
the church is hanging out. They're meeting, right? They're, they're in koinonia. They are in fellowship. They are devoting themselves to one another, to their needs, to gospel-centered preaching. They are devoting themselves to all of these rhythms that constitute a family. And what is happening is that there is a watching world that doesn't know Jesus watching the church. See, the second part of Ephesians 3, right? God chooses to reveal himself through the church to a watching world. That's the second part of Ephesians chapter 3. And so there are those who don't know Jesus who are looking directly into the church, acknowledging that we look weird, that we have quirks, that we have all these oddities and life is messy. Yet in the middle of that, as much as we get a taste of the kingdom, so do they. And they say, I don't know what that's about, but I want in. And so what we see in Acts 2 is that lost people are being saved, that God is adding people to the church. And that's essentially the story of Acts, that God adds to the church. He adds disciples to the church, which means now they are becoming devoted to one another and the rest of the church. That means that if salvations are happening and gospel conversations are taking place, three things Three things are going on. The first one is that they are confessing their sin. Now, there's a difference, I believe, between confession and repentance. You see, in confession, that is where you and I agree to the charges that have been brought up against us. So we confess that that is true, that we have committed those sins. Then what happens next is repentance. Repentance is not only where we ask for forgiveness, but we turn away from those charges because of Jesus and put our trust in Jesus. And then the last thing happens. Change. Change happens. I was at a conference uh, this weekend alongside and... uh, it was really cool. It was really fun. I, I enjoyed it. My wife and I both did. And we got together with a couple of other pastors uh, and their wives and uh, for a spontaneous Q&A, so to speak. And one of the questions that an individual had, because uh, we were receiving them by text message, so we didn't know who was, who was giving the questions. One of the questions that an individual had was, what if I continue to confess and repent of my sin, yet I am still in the midst of my sin, right? Like nothing is changing. And it was a really good question. And at the same time, we didn't have a lot of information. We're just taking it at face value, right? And because we're taking it at face value, you might find yourself in that same place. Man, I'm confessing and I'm repenting and nothing is really happening, right? And so here was our answer. The fruit of confession and repentance is change. That is the fruit of confession and repentance. And so if you come before God and you're like, man, I am confessing and repenting of my sin, but nothing is changing, then that's not really confession or repentance. That's just admitting that either you were caught or that you're guilty. There is a follow-through, and that is change, what the Bible calls transformation, right? That is the fruit of confession 
and repentance, there is transformation. So, man, if you find yourself, you're like, man, I'm just, I'm just getting hammered by this, by this one sin. One, I get that there are seasons of struggle, and that might not necessarily pertain to you. But number two, if there is no change, right? We looked at this, uh, what, two weeks ago in John 15, right, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he gives the two options. You're either going to be pulled back or you're going to be pruned. And the reason you're pruned is so that you bear more fruit, so that the quality of your fruit is better, so that decay would be cast aside, or you will be cast out. So the question I would then propose is, are you really submitted to Jesus to begin with? That's where I would start, if you find yourself there. And then finally, number 10 or excuse me, number nine, gathering regularly. So we see them gather in the temple, breaking bread together. This is what we talked about, that we gather on Sunday mornings to celebrate the greatness of Jesus. And then finally, number 10, that in that context of 42 to 47, they are serving one another, right? that they are serving one another. See, in a family, everyone has a role. Everyone has a responsibility. Everyone shares the load for the health of the family, not necessarily the individual. See, when it comes to the family, it's all for you, but it's not necessarily about you, right? And so you learn and you grow and you mature as a family and everyone shares the load because everyone has responsibilities. I've shared this story before. Uh, If you're new, I'll share it here and it's kind of new, right? So my parents who are great, (laughs) right? So this, like they got married. My mom would knock out the laundry and then my eldest brother came. His name was Meme. And Meme, when he was old enough, my mom taught him how to do the laundry and Meme's responsibility was to do his and my parents' laundry. And then Joe came around and Joe's responsibility when he was of age, as if this was a rite of passage, uh, when he came of age, he had to do his laundry along with Meme's and my parents and fold it, right? And my mom had a specific way, has a specific way of folding laundry. And then David came along, and then David was responsible for his laundry, and Joe's laundry, and Mema's laundry, and my parents' laundry. It's like a system, right? And, uh, <laughs> and then the blessing arrived. Um, and, and when I came of age, my mom grabbed me and she showed me how to do laundry and I was responsible for doing my laundry, David's laundry, Joe's laundry, Mema's laundry, and my parents' laundry. And I hated it. And, uh, but like that was the chore. Those were the chores that I were given, that I was given. They were given other chores. Everybody had a job. Everybody had something to do in the family. And particularly under our uh, household, you just never said, I'm bored, because that just means that you got, there's work, right? My son now knows this firsthand. The other day I was in a meeting there in our dining room, and I can see Seth on the edge of the bed, and he has his hand on his cheek, and he's like sighing. And I said, hey, are you bored? He's like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm reading this book. It's upside down, and he's great. Like, he knows that if he's bored, there is work to do around the house, because Something's always got to get done. Everybody's got a job. Everybody has a responsibility. And it's all for the purpose of the health of the family, not just the individual, right? It's the same way in the church. 
everyone has a responsibility. Everyone shares the load. And if you're not serving at the moment, let me encourage you to serve. Some of them, yeah, there's a little bit more of a time commitment. Other areas of serving, there really isn't a big time commitment, but it's still significant. In fact, since we're on the topic, let me tell you about two areas that we do really need help in. The first one, man, if you're tech savvy, if you want to be tech savvy, our boys up in the production crew need help. They really, really do need help. It's led by a guy named Everett. He is awesome. He is amazing. And he is quiet. But nevertheless, when it comes to Everett, his entire team consists of five junior high and high school boys and one high school girl, the youth. Our student ministry, that is his crew, and they help significantly when it comes to Sunday mornings. But when it comes to graphics, when it comes to the video announcements that we do, when it comes to social media or the website, he's really, really shorthanded. So if you're tech savvy, if you know a little bit, if you can give an hour or two during the week, we got some work because he's running on fumes. Okay? The second area is our connect team or connections. It's led by Christina Pena. Right now she's the one kind of doing a bunch of it. She receives your connect cards. She follows up via email and phone call. Her job is to connect you to a community group or to the things that are going on. But the problem is that it's just one person. It's so scarce right now that she isn't in here. She's serving with the kids. She needs two or three more people to help follow up with others. She needs two or three more people to help create a pipeline so that we can connect people well. Those are two areas. Feeling, I don't know about that. Those are two areas. I didn't choose to do the laundry. It was a need that my family had, right? That, that's how it works. And at the same time, you learn stuff. I think one of the greatest things that I get to see in light of Everett and how he leads his team is I get to see that my son's on there. And so Seth has done like basic video editing. He's worked on the slides. He's worked, I saw him today near the sound uh, board. I've seen him do things on the computer with Everett. And what I love about that is that that's something, that's an experience and that is a trade that he's going to grow in. And one day, should he want to do more with that, they're going to ask him, so where did you learn how to do this? And he's going to say, the church. The church is where I learned how to do this. The church is where I was equipped to do this. Part of our job as the church is to share the load, to devote ourselves with, to devote ourselves to one another for the purpose of the health of the church. That's why this all matters. Family life is messy, it's quirky, it sometimes can be difficult, but that doesn't mean it gives you a reason to complain, but to participate. Oftentimes, I will hear complaining from the church. Why don't we have that? Why wasn't this system better developed? Why wasn't the communication done well? Instead of complaining, why don't you participate? Participate in the life of the church. Because we will read through Acts 2 and we will amen it all day long. But as soon as those needs come up, I have all these other things to do. So do the people doing 90% of the work. They have other things to do as well. I am massively blessed by our volunteer staff. 
Earlier this week, I was in a uh, cohort. James and I were in a cohort with a couple of other pastors. And they, we were working through staff uh, needs. And one of the pastors goes on and says, man, I don't want to replicate systems. I want to replicate Marco and James. And so we said, why would you want to replicate us? And he says, I want to know how your entire team doesn't get paid. <laughs> right? He goes, how did you get them to do that? And so we begin to answer and we begin by saying, we, uh, we asked them if they could help. And this other pastor, so profoundly, his mind exploded. His response was, so what you're saying is you've created this culture of asking. No joke. That was his quote. You could ask James. I think he's running around somewhere, but you can ask him. His response was, so you're telling me you've created a culture of asking. And James and I looked like jerks because we looked at one another and said, well, you just ask. I don't know. I don't know what else you want us to do. You just ask. Hey, we need help here. Would you mind helping? And there's the team, right? That's how it worked. I'm so massively blessed by those guys because they put in anywhere between 10 to 15 hours a week and have families and responsibilities. I'm not asking you to do more. I am asking you to be intentional with what's already on the plate. There's a difference. There's a big difference on that. I am not asking you to add more to your calendar. I'm not asking you to add more to your plate. I am asking you to be intentional with If everything ties us back to Jesus and the gospel affects change, then we must recognize that God the Father is the ultimate Father, sending his son, check it, sending his son to plunge himself into the mess that we call life. And through his obedience, we are adopted into the family. If the gospel affects change, then who Jesus says we are as the church determines our activity and no one is overlooked. Our fuel then is our satisfaction in Jesus. That is the fuel that carries us, our satisfaction in Jesus. Not in one another. As much as we're going to be devoted and committed to one another, our satisfaction isn't going to be found in one another because ultimately I'm going to fail you. Inevitably, you're going to fail one another. And so our satisfaction rests in Jesus. Church, community is not simply something we're a part of. It's a theological conviction. And to say, and this might be you today, and to say that you love Jesus but hate the church, that is a robust theological inconsistency. That is an immature understanding of the gospel. Jesus and his church are the package. You don't get to choose. It's not multiple choice to say that you love Jesus but hate the church. I would question if you really understand his word, gospel, and work. It's going to be messy. It's going to be quirky. It's going to be lively. And we are still a family. So don't complain. Participate. Don't create a multiple choice, but embrace 
the quirkiness, embrace the weirdness. Stop being inconsistent with what you say you believe. Because if you say that Jesus is what ultimately identifies you and your activity is inconsistent with that as an individual or as a church, then we have missed it. And we are inconsistent in our beliefs, in our identity, in our activity. And so if that's you today, repent. Let me encourage you as your brother, as your friend, as your pastor, repent. Right? It's the same way with my wife and I. You can't come to me and say, man, I love you. I want to be your friend. I just don't like your family. Then you're not going to get me. You don't get to hang with me. Period. It's the same way with Jesus and the church. I mean, he details it in Ephesians 5, where the church is referred to as the bride and the groom is referred to as Jesus. You don't get one or the other. You get both. You get both. And so finally, church, kingdoms, businesses, and empires will rise and they will fall. But the church of Jesus Christ will endure forever. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we, uh, as we close our time, uh, Lord, my, my, my prayer is that your word convicts, compels, and changes us. It changes us so that we would evaluate our hearts, so that we would then, so that then your gospel would affect change. And that change in this context would be that we would devote ourselves to one another that we would serve one another, and that we would love one another, all in the hurricane of uh, family, family quirkiness, weirdness, oddities, messiness, arguments, disagreements. I pray that we would hold fast the principle of your word and not the practice. Practices will always change. And so let us be a people that holds fast to the principle of your word. Thank you for this time. Pray that you were glorified. Pray that you continue to be glorified in our time. <clears throat> I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here who are maybe even wrestling and grappling with the notion of this being a family because maybe their backgrounds, family meant something else. But what we know from your word is that it never returns void. And so maybe we hold fast to your word. Maybe we trust in you as we move forward together as a family. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.